Hello and welcome to episode 398 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in separate locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the college football playoff finalist Huskies. And I'm coming here from Redmond, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. You are way too chipper right now. Look, that's... there is nothing to be chipper about, good sir. We can still look fondly back on a Husky season or the Seahawks playing games and not be chipper like that. When the football season has come to an end for both of them. Somehow not with a loss for the Seahawks, but boy, did it sure feel like it, even though they, they technically won the game. I don't know. I mean, the number of people... Sometimes who were, a win is a loss. Well, that's a fair point. The number of people who were posting kind of the the Huskies, I forget exactly what the social media post was, but everyone posted on Instagram about, you know, just what a great season it was and yeah. a mem- all the memories. Like, that definitely got to me. And I've had... A solid 24 plus hours to rationalize here. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Man, I, 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 we'll talk about the Huskies at the, at the end, at the very end of this podcast, because I got no good rationalization. Left. Oh, jeez. I've got only darkness now. Well, I mean, I will say, like, there's a We're lot gonna of people. We're going to be at like, opposite, opposite ends of the spectrum. So I guess that's good. That's always fun. There, there are a lot of people who are like, you know, how do they make sure that getting to the play, final isn't the high point of the Kaylin DeBoer era? I'm like, guys. That, that probably is going to be the high point. Of, <laughs> There's only one other point to get to. It's not, yeah. <laughs> There's really not that much more studio stays to explore. They could win more games in the college football playoff going forward than just the one that they did this year. So I guess that they got that going for them. I, I think that the playoff structure changing is going to radically change how we talk about college football. In fact. Of course, it's going to make all the things we once celebrated completely and utterly meaningless. Beating Oregon is never completely and utterly fair. Thank you. Beating Oregon. Twice. Twice. Jake Browning pointing at Oregon, I think actually might be the greatest moment in UW history. I'll, I'll hear the argument. <laughs> we can talk about that later. That's not for right now. We're not talking about the Huskies right this second. We are not. Let's start with our toast because we got a lot to get to. Uh, a congratulations to the Krakens all-star representative because every team has to have one. Oliver, Oliver They're Brooks not that Wayne. bad. That was like a like Mariners level, like Doug, Bill Swift, I guess. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's Cy Young Award winner, Bill Swift. I, mean, I don't, know. I don't know. Who do you think is the most pathetic Mariners <laughs> all-star uh, participant? There uh, must have, it this... must have been more like Jose Vidro, apparently. Or something. This is a terrific question that we should have done on the podcast at some point. And I'm sure the listener who is much more familiar familiar with the dark years of Mariners history immediately. I don't think anything pre-90 counts or something like that. Like, I mean, maybe it does, but it's just a different team after that. But after the kind of initial playoff bound version of the Mariners, it had to have come in the year like 2004 through the year 2020. Do you know that Brandon League was an all-star for the Mariners? <laughs> that might be it. I mean, but he wasn't the automatic representative. They had uh, they had three all-stars that year. Felix made it go. and Michael okay. Pineda. So he, oh, yeah. See, they always had Felix during that time period. And, so and Ichiro. Kind of throw it off. So they, yeah. they did not really have... Oh, so Ichiro like the, is the worst Mariners all-star. He somehow 
elected like 11 times uh no they never had the, like the actual answer of here, any and and i love this guy i you know i, I wish to speak no ill of him but daniel vogelbach <laughs> rocking the two-way batting average when he was an all-star in 2019 i i think that's got to be the modern answer here man i really i don't know probably enough I mean, I recognize the names of the players who were all stars for the Mariners in the '80s. Uh, they they couldn't have been that bad in all likelihood. It's Bogey Burgers. I think that's. I think you're probably right on that one. Yeah, the listener can weigh in if if I'm wrong. But uh, with all due respect, Mariners may have traded for a better version of Daniel Vogelbach earlier this week or last week. I so, mean, he got uh, DFA'd by the team. <laughs> Not that old. He got DFA'd by the team. Anyways, every team in the NHL has to have an all-star. I to me, Vince wow, Dunn he's been was on the... so many teams since the Mariners designated for assignment before he caught on with the Mets. To me, Vince Dunn was the pick, but the Discord did not feel like it was clear. Uh Bjorkstrand, a first-time all-star who ranks second on the Kraken in both goals and assists. So congrats to Oliver Bjorkstrand. Uh congrats to Seahawks defensive tackle Leonard Williams, who like somebody was making history for the Seahawks on even on defense. On Sunday, by virtue of his midseason trade after the Seahawks bye week, became the first player since 1930 to play 18 games in a season, is noted by Pro Football Reference. This was something I took, I observed when he was traded to the Seahawks, but then had completely forgotten about. I think a lot of people forgot about it until like after the game. Yeah. Going in, it wasn't a news story. When I looked this up, when the trade first happened, there was someone who had a chance to do it last season and was like very upset about the possibility, like having to play an 18th game and not getting a bye week, which Leonard Williams expressed nothing but, uh, uh, you know, being cool with it. Uh, and then that player subsequently missed the end of the season due to injury. So did not have a chance to do it. Could use that bye week. Anyway, Leonard Williams dog, though. Love Leonard Williams. Yeah, not not the problem. Uh, lastly, this week, we're wishing a fond farewell to original sounder Osvaldo Alonso, who announced his retirement at age 38 after 15 seasons in MLS, most recently with Atlanta United. Played the first 10 of those seasons with the Sounders, winning four U.S. Open Cups, the Supporters' Shield in 2014, and the first MLS Cup in 2016 before being part of the team that lost the MLS Cup final in 2017. Alonso's 10 career goals and 13 assists for the Sounders in MLS league play don't do justice to his impact defensively in the midfield, where he earned the nickname Honey Badger. He was a four-time All-Star, part of the league's best 11 in 2012, and we certainly should have mentioned him when we recently were talking about the Sounders. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, Mount was Rushmore. he not? Did we not chat about Ozzy Alonso as part of the Mountain I, I Yeah, I blanked on that one. I'm going to take the blame. Okay. So, nothing but love for Osvaldo Alonso, without question. Or as we get into this quickly this week, we have the return oh. for the first time, I think since mid-season, because we didn't do them at the end of the season. We just did a, a standard segment. It's time for your favorite segment. This is a Seahawks take. <laughs> I thought it was funny to hear Pete Carroll say that the end of the season, that he's not worn out. He's not tired. Because you know who is worn out? Me and the rest of the Seahawks fan base who watched a team miss the playoffs again their second time in the last three years and finish in the bottom third of point differential behind the Bears, the Colts, the Vikings, 
three of the closest teams to them in point differential, in fact, have already fired their head coach, something the Seahawks should be considering this offseason. And it was also funny to hear Pete say that the team is closer to the Super Bowl than they were a year ago. And I can only assume he means that literally since Vegas is about 200 miles closer to Seattle than Glendale. Because by any other metric, this team is a lot closer to the Falcons than they are the Niners and the Ravens. It was a step backwards in basically every aspect of the game. And you know the best way to rebuild a roster? Through draft picks. But the Seahawks just lit a few of those on fire this year. A common behavior for Pete and John. Pick 47, one of the most valuable picks in the draft, just gone for a half a season of Leonard Williams on a move any aware fan knew at the time was awful. We called it, I believe, quote that. Now remind me how these front offices know more than fans. And then on Sunday, after the Bears lost in Lambeau, a two-point conversion, two missed field goals, and boom, they're drafting two picks later for literally no reason. The Raiders and the Saints had better point differentials than the Seahawks and are getting better draft picks. They're in literally a worse head coaching situation than Dennis Allen and a guy who is a linebackers coach two months ago. We can now debate which of the many Seahawks big trades was the worst in Seahawks history. No, in NFL history. By comparison, they gave away picks and future assets the way Pete loves to give away games with punts. He is an exactly 500 coach in seasons without Russell Wilson. They lucked into a generational quarterback and an amazing young defense and managed to turn that into one Super Bowl and a number of high draft picks spent on running back. It was the Russell Wilson era, not Pete Carroll and John Schneider, because they have intentionally and repeatedly been stacking the deck against themselves via trades for future assets allocation of resources, and poor decisions on the field, and you cannot win forever that way. Pete seems like a good deal, seems like a good dude, and honestly, a great representative of the city, but he's also a defensive-minded coach with a shitty defense. Without Russell Wilson is not a winner and has helped dismantle the hopes of the Seahawks' future. So I have a bit of career advice because I am worn out. Thanks for Devin Witherspoon. And Pete Carroll, retire, bitch. All right, I guess we're getting to do it right now. So I I didn't okay. want to tell you that was the Seahawks take going in. I, you, <laughs> you did you did keep it from me. You hit it well. I, I I didn't even see the Pete Carroll retire bitch coming. I gotta be honest. All right, let's unpack a few things. The Seahawks only moved two down two spots in the draft by only it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The actual like, only move down two spots in the draft. Who cares? The actual it's two thing, spots for nothing. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to see Pete Carroll like pull all the starters. The had Matt Prater, wait, yeah, Matt Prater, right? Simply yeah. made the final field goal after missing a much more makeable field goal on a pre, on the previous possession to keep the Seahawks within I, one. Score. I actually did. This is not something that I'm that upset about because I do think the difference between the 14th pick and the 16th pick is virtually nothing when it comes to value. But like you still control your position in the draft a little bit better at 14 than at 16. Your ability to trade down from there if a quarterback falls there or whatever, like 
you're just you give up some flexibility in the draft by having a lower draft pick there. It would have been the most satisfying outcome if the offense had that drive, which was awesome. I mean, it it is like there, there's a dual edge, uh, two sides of the coin with Geno Smith like tying the record for fourth quarter comeback wins or uh, comebacks on the final drive or whatever. I don't know was. how that's mathematically possible. It it is wild that. They actually did. I, I I had forgotten how many of those were actually a good against good teams because you had uh, this wasn't the fourth the quarter Browns. comeback, but the the Detroit Browns, win Eagles. in overtime. Well, the Cleveland game wasn't Geno, but yeah. And then yeah, yeah, the Philadelphia game without him, but also a couple of those drives were like last second game winning drives to beat the Washington Commanders and the Arizona Cardinals, who both went four and thirteen on the season. I mean, <laughs> it's like oh the, great. The frustrating part about this is the Seahawks almost made the playoffs while being bad. So I will push back on this a little bit. I, we're relying heavily on point differential. The Seahawks schedule was very hard. In what regard? If you that they they there's a bunch of metrics, and I'm on the opposite side of this argument. I don't think there that they are were metrics a that bad talk about this. Team. Was their DVOA amazing? No, it was not amazing. It was far from amazing, but it was 16th. So it wasn't like, I, I think the comparison to the Bears and the Colts is a little bit going too far. The Colts were 20th in DVOA. They were 3.7% percentage points worse. The Bears were 7 percentage points worse. Like those were teams that played substantially easier schedules than the Seahawks did. And also, you know, just kind of the hidden factors that go into DVOA. Uh, third downs in particular will not were not as favorable to those teams. So we don't think it's that the Seahawks are necessarily a a bad team, but they are an average team that thinks they're right on the verge of because not only did Pete Carroll say they're closer to the Super Bowl contention than they were a year ago, a year ago he said that they were pretty close to the 49ers. So he already <laughs> thought they were very close to the Super Bowl, and he thinks they've gotten closer somehow. I mean, that actually was not the quote that worried me the most. Uh, from worried you the most. Yeah, it should have been know. all of it. It should have also been having Pete Carroll have the just total and complete leeway to decide whether he was coming back or not. I, I mean, mean, Pete look, Carroll runs Pete the Carroll, franchise. He is the franchise at this point. I don't think that Pete, first off, most teams have already made coaching changes if they plan to do this. And I don't think the Seahawks necessarily would have allowed him the, the to go out there that on he was Seattle's talking point. about it. The, but the way that he was talking about it wasn't like a, we're going to have some conversations. It was Pete Carroll is coming back because Pete Carroll says he's coming back. But Pete Carroll always said, I'm planning on coming back. That's different from what Jody Allen is planning, to be clear. Again, I don't think anything's happening, but that is different. No, absolutely not. No. Pete Carroll is coming back as a coach. But the the worrisome thing to me, and we had a robust debate about this on the Discord where not everyone agreed with me, was him saying, like, when asked about the team as a whole, we played we young. We played young. We made too many young guy kind of mistakes all the way across the board. It's a team that's growing. And it's that last part of it that is the context that suggests to me that Pete Carroll is viewing this is we the reason that we fell short this season is because we weren't experienced enough. And as we add more experience, naturally, we will get better. Now, not that he's not going to think about making any changes because there are some other quotes that suggest he does. But if he thinks that the fundamental issue with the team was the youth, particularly given that the offense was pretty good, at times very good, 
that was the young side of the ball. The offense is legitimately young at the skill positions uh, with Jackson Smith and Jigba and Ken Walker the third and Zach Charbonnet playing as much as they did. A pretty young offensive line, all things considered. Even with Geno Smith being an older quarterback, they are in among the 10 youngest offenses. But on defense, where they were very bad, where they you know, did start, I think he thinks they're young because of the fact that Devin Witherspoon is young, Enrique Woolen is young, and some of the other cornerbacks are young. But at all the other positions, they're not young on defense and changed over a lot last year and got worse somehow and still have not been above average since 2017. And there, because of the fact that Bobby Wagner, you know, was a big part of this and Quandre Diggs and even uh, Leonard Williams is, you know, 29, he's older than average. They were above average in terms of defensive age. And yet Pete Carroll thinks youth was their problem. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that that's wrong. Played young is such a strange thing to describe because I think what he's saying is they didn't play the scheme particularly well. And they made a number of repeated mistakes when playing the scheme. And there were a number of breakdowns when playing the scheme. I mean, you saw it over and over and over again. There was a play that uh, somebody had highlighted where it was just like, there's a two-man route that the Cardinals ran, and there's like five Seahawks on one side of the field and one Seahawk near either of the routes. And it's just like, what is happening here? How could it have been this bad at this point in the season? And I think that's kind of what he's talking about is there were just so many complete breakdowns in the secondary in particular and at the linebackers in particular. So I, playing young is one thing, but to me that says the scheme is broken. That if this point in the season, you either have the exact wrong talent on the field or the scheme doesn't make sense. If the players who have been in that scheme for that many games, for 17 games, are still having those breakdowns, the issue is the scheme more than it is the players. Because these are highly paid players out there. These are players that the Seahawks have gone out and plucked and paid money to. So they either just missed on all of those mistakes. There's no answer that's the right answer because they are not young. There's no answer that's if, the right answer because Pete Carroll no, has heavy involvement were, in picking the players. But like, if they were if an the players, young defense, that would be the right answer. But sure. that's what I'm saying. If that is that, but the thing is, they're not. So it's either you pick the wrong players or you have the wrong scheme. Right or, now, the or defense, you communicating the scheme to them wrong. It's it's one of those things. But ultimately, I, I will tell you, we'll probably talk about this on the on the year Seahawks year in review podcast. I think Clint Hurd is probably gone. Uh, and I I just we've talked about this over and over and over again that it is the defensive coordinator changes and changes and changes, and it's like at some point something else has to change. It can't always be this same scheme or pray that you find these defenders that you're looking for because something else has to happen along the way and they found some good pieces but if the other pieces aren't making sense within that scheme it doesn't matter how good Devin Witherspoon is I mean they ended up 28th in defensive DVOA like near the very bottom of the league after spending a top five pick on an impactful defender after this is not a cheap defense after bringing back Bobby Wagner, yeah, no, like, look, all this, it's, it's just they have spent. It's not acceptable results on defense. On the defense, and it, obviously, like the, I was thinking about a Chenonuosu because that injury, I think we maybe overlooked that just a little tiny bit, uh, as far as like the pass rush got a lot worse after his injury. But at the same time, like there are teams who are missing players throughout the year. If it's a Chenonuosu who's like the difference between you having a good defense and a bad defense, you have a bad defense. Uh, 
and and that to me is just like there's literally not a scheme in place that can work with almost anybody. If you have spent this much money and this much resources on these players, if what you need is the most elite level talent across the board and you're unable to get that, then you have to figure something else out. And the Seahawks have not. That The fact that they got worse at defense throughout the year, I think was a little shocking to me. And I think they also, because of how, how teams played against them, I think they deluded themselves and the quarterbacks that they played along the way into thinking that they had a good defense. I believed it too. I believe that there was a good defense in there because there were some big plays that happened, but like their inability to turn the ball over late in the season to their inability to stop the run. is just like, they're not that young in the defensive line. Jaron Reed didn't play on Sunday, but Jaron Reed played against the Steelers. Jaron Reed ain't that young. Leonard Williams ain't that young. Dre Jones ain't that young. So like Bobby Wagner, obviously Jordan Brooks, these players are players who are going on to their second or third contracts. I just, there's literally no answer. The only thing that can be done, I mean, they can go make some moves in free agency, but as far as a complete overhaul of the defense, there's not a chance of doing that right now. If you're going to run it back with mostly the same group, something else needs to change. Yeah. And I mean, I will say to his credit, Pete Carroll brought in a number of outside voices when Clint Hurt became defensive coordinator. Uh, I boldly predicted a prediction that I continue to feel good about that Sean Desai would be the next defensive coordinator for the Seahawks uh, after his scapegoating in Philadelphia and how poorly that has gone with the Eagles defense collapsing even worse under Matt Patricia. Like the, the, the Eagles collapse defensively actually makes me feel better about the Seahawks defense. That's how badly the Eagles have collapsed. Sean Desai did nothing wrong, but it's still too much of the same. And it, to the extent that they did change things, that also did not work. I wish they could hire Dan Quinn. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I, think I would we take Dan Quinn as head coach. It's an interesting consideration. It's probably a conversation that we'll have a little bit with uh, Ben Baldwin on that season in review. Anything else we want to say on the Seahawks at this moment was, before that? It was just ultimately kind of a bad season. Like, I mean, we we can talk about that with Ben, but like. It wasn't that much fun along the way. There were a handful of moments and there were players that were fun. But also when you look back on it, I think there was a pretty complete misuse of Jackson Smith and Jigba. Eh, and I figuring out that far. Okay. There was at least a minor or a medium misuse of Jackson Smith and Jigba. It, and you can you kind of can't help but look at the team and think about the money that's being paid to different positions and the resources that are being spent on different positions and it's like i love zach charbonnet but they weren't one zach charbonnet away from being a good team and having used a second round pick there on defense that's where they needed a player not for two years in a row drafting a running back in the second round both can i mean you could have taken this team removed ken walker and zach charbonnet and had a seventh round draft pick or an undrafted free agent at running back and i think they have the exact same record or they most likely have a better record because you would have spent those draft picks somewhere else. It's weird because we've talked about this. The Seahawks, it's been, they, Chris Carson was a, a huge success and Thomas Rawls before him, but it's been so long since any of these 
you know, third string running backs that usually come in and have terrific success for teams have been able to do so for the Seahawks, which I think has convinced not only a lot of Seahawks fans, but the Seahawks is an organization that running backs matter and has led to their investment in them, even though those investments I mean, haven't I, really paid off. I like Ken Walker and Zach Charbonnet as players. I like watching them and some of the plays that Ken Walker makes. I love Zach Charbonnet, but like realistically, I would love a defensive stop. I would love for the Seahawks to be able to stop Najee fucking Harris from running the ball. Like, realistically, we're just not... I'm not over that game two weeks ago against the Steelers. They missed the playoffs in that game. They missed the playoffs because of the missed field goal at LA. But, like, they just weren't a good enough team. That's it. That's that's what happened in the end. This isn't the same as the Huskies being like, oh, if there's one play or whatever. One play goes differently against Michigan. That's true. That's a reality. They were capably talent-wise on the same level playing field as Michigan. The Seahawks aren't playing the same fucking game as the Ravens are playing. They're nowhere near the Super Bowl. If they make the playoffs, they would have had to have been in a situation where they were playing against the Eagles to have won a game. So they, they just are so deeply far away that it's not one running back. It's not one 30-year-old defensive lineman. It's not another running back the next year. They have mishandled their resources pretty completely. They got set up on fucking third base so many times. They were born on third base with Russell Wilson, and they were born on third base with the Russell Wilson trade after that. Yeah, Russell you were, Wilson you were saying this organization. Look, the Jamal Adams trade, obviously continues to work out very poorly for the Seahawks. But I think if you guys Denver Broncos fans, they have a candidate for a worse trade than the Jamal Adams trade. I mean, they're, they're basically... I, no. I, I feel like they're, pro they're no. probably equal. I don't know. Russell Wilson I, played. He, <laughs> he played. was there they, to play. The fact that the Seahawks have played Jamal Adams has been a net negative for them. I agree with that. And they gave the most better draft picks on the whole, right? Now, I guess... No, the, David Witherspoon, remember, is because of Russell, the Russell Wilson trade, friend. I had to, oh, I'm aware. But that's what I'm saying to you is they were born on third base twice, two different times. And they managed to turn it into after, literally after the draft, they had the, the defensive talent in place. They had Russell Wilson. They went out, they made the Cliff Averill and the Michael Bennett signings. And then they stopped doing good things until they traded. I mean, they're good draft picks a handful along the way. But like organizationally and structurally, they kind of haven't done anything right except for that period and the trade of Russell Wilson. There's almost nothing else you can point to that it's like, hey, they made a good decision here. We fucking applauded when they drafted an offensive lineman because it was like they just didn't do something crazy in the first round. That's the threshold that we were at after the Russell Wilson trade. But there's nothing that you could say that they have done. As far as allocation of resources, you get one salary cap, and they chose to spend a lot of that salary cap on Will Disley. And obviously, Will Disley is a dog for life, but like Good on the field, on, on the field, Will Disley is not having that kind of impact. The trade for Jamal Adams, all of the big trades that they've made, the trade for Leonard Williams, the trade for Sheldon Richardson, all of these things, process-wise, they are so bad at running a football team. They are truly awful at it. And that's what I'm saying is they, again, they've been born on third base. This isn't people who worked for it. They got lucky. If we are being honest, they got lucky with I mean, both I, of those trades. I think you're overstimulated. I mean, Dr no, you don't, you don't give it, you do not get credit for a third round draft pick and being like, we found them. They that's also not, drafted Richard Sherman in what, the fifth round? You know, Cam Chancellor. No, they had, they, they had 
they had good young defensive talent for a couple of seasons. They did very good in those two situations. But if you don't have Russell Wilson, they're the New York Jets. Like that is what we're, that is if we're being honest with ourselves, Russell Wilson, we, we, I've gone through the whole cycle. I'm back at flatlining. This is it. This is where I'm going to be on Russell Wilson forever. He's the most important Seahawks, Seahawk in history. He is the best Seahawk in history. And he delivered us this timeline or whatever. Now you I mean, could say that maybe they don't win the Super Bowl without that defense, but like they, they lucked into Russell Wilson. They lucked into the Russell Wilson trade and they fucking blown it both times. So thank you for Devin Witherspoon. I, I had one more point on the youth thing. You know who the youngest offense in the league was? And it's like not even close. The Texans? Is it the Texans? No. The Texans oh. are quite good as well. You got to think a little closer to, to not. At the Rams? It's not the Rams either. The Rams were very young on defense, not on offense. It's the Green Bay Packers, the team who oh, knocked yeah. them out of the playoffs. Who You know what they did as a young team? They got better as the season went along which is what typically happens with young teams. Houston's an example of that as well, uh, aside from the C.J. Stroud injuries. I mean, the, the, the Seahawks the got worse over the course of the season. Offensive-minded coach whose offense was good. Weird. That's how this is supposed to happen. But if you're a defensive-minded coach and you can't coach defense, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what Pete Carroll does, aside yes. from being a... He, and I really like Pete Carroll. That's the thing. Pete Carroll will probably go down as the best coach in Seahawks history. I love Pete Carroll. I don't think but... he'll probably go down as the best coach in Seahawks history. I mean, there can always be a better coach. But at this point, at this point, Pete no Carroll question. is the best coach in Seahawks history. And I love Pete Carroll. But also, Pete Carroll is so bad. And John Schneider are so bad at running a football team. And that is kind of their just job. Making trades. But there's more than just making trades. What do they do that's good? Do they develop players? They have traded down a lot historically. I mean, I don't need. I don't think we need to have yeah, this entire fight right now. So but you're you're cherry picking like the minors things. The trading overall, down is trading down is the single most important thing you can do but as a franchise. The most important thing you could do as a franchise is value draft picks. But trading down is part of valuing draft picks. And yes, I agree that they have. Rittered a number of them away on veteran players, not understanding the marginal value also, of rookie not salaries drafting players, as opposed to veteran salaries. Not drafting players at optimal positions as well. That is also something that they have not done well. So I don't think that is valuing draft picks. The things you can do as coaches. But again, you're just cherry picking the negative things and ignoring the positive things, which is what people do. What What are the positive things aside from you want Ben here to have this? We're never going to be as angry when Ben's here. <laughs> I, it's so neutral. <laughs> they have but made a number of good trades involving late-round picks for veterans. The Quandre Diggs trade is an amazing heist. Like, I, but again, then, you can't just they, ignore I, all the good amazing heist. Say, I, I do not. I do not agree that the Quandre Diggs heist trade is an amazing heist. But then they also turned around and paid him like he was one of the best safeties in the league. What do you like? They fucked that one up is too. one of the best safeties in the league. Is he? What is his yes. PFF grade? I don't know what his PFF grade is. I'm not not sure I particularly care. You just can't ignore all the good things they do and talk about only the negative things. If you any franchise, you can look at just the negative things. And you're repeating 5. yourself. 1. And this argument is tiresome and annoying. So okay. we're moving on. Because whatever. In the wheel of Mer of Seattle sports management, with the Seahawks now 
you know, joy and all the ire. It has somehow gone away from the Seattle Mariners, who, speaking of vibes, had a very good vibes trade last week as they essentially completed their 2024 roster with a pair of trades. The first one to be reported, sending Robbie Ray to the Giants in exchange for coming home, Mitch Hanniger, oh. along with another Italian, Anthony Sclafani, starting pitcher. Uh, then they sent Jose Caballero to the Tampa Bay Rays for first baseman outfielder Luke Rayleigh. I mean, Hanniger was the guy we wanted them to resign last year. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I do feel like there had to be a little part of it of just like they obviously know Mitch. They knew that the fans were going to like this one. Oh, yeah. Having Mitch Haniger back on the roster the last time they made the playoffs, the first time they made made the playoffs in so many decades. Like, we just like Mitch Haniger because we've seen the Giants hadn't seen the positives of Mitch Haniger, but we've seen those. We've seen him be a middle-of-the-order hitter for the Mariners and one of the best hitters on the team for a handful of years. So having Mitch Haniger back, I mean, I who knows if Mitch Haniger will ever be that player again. Uh, but he, he has this is the last year of his deal, right? So it's not no. a huge commitment. No, he has a player option for 2023, 2025. Okay, so two years. But but it's also not not huge money on his deal. And there's upside to Mitch Hanniger. This isn't a situation where, like, there's no chance of him being a good hitter. I think they have, at the very least, improved the the lineup slightly with Mitch Hanniger. And they've improved the window for success for the team. And they've also just added another major league caliber outfielder which is something that they deeply needed. Seems like the players like him. People will be excited about Mitch Haniger. I mean, they added two major league caliber outfielders in this trade. We'll talk about Rayleigh later, but uh, you mentioned the Giants not having seen the positives. They got the worst season of his major league career. He slashed 209, 266, 365, which is why the Giants were so eager to get out of the remainder of his contract. Uh, it was a 631 OPS. He had never previously been below 700. Uh, Handiger missed two and a half months with a right forearm fracture after being hit by a pitch in mid-June and after returning at the end of August hit just 159 in the final 21 games he played so I, I mean the hope is he'll be healthy which you know has always been the question mark with Handiger, and will produce more like we saw in Seattle but there there is some risk here that he's just kind of you know sub-replacement going forward still uh, like Mitch Handiger. Exactly. And gives the Mariners, along with Garver, a pair of Mitch's important stat here from the great Alex Meyer of Mariners PR. The 1989 Cubs were the only major league team with multiple Mitch's, both Webster and Williams, a.k.a. the Wild Thing. Wild Thing. And a pretty good team, the 1989 Cubs back then. Uh, Di Sclafani, starting pitcher depth after the Mariners traded Marco Gonzalez and, and obviously Ray in this deal, missed most of 2022 to, due to ankle surgery and was shut down last July due to a flexor strain, although it sounds like he is expected to be ready for uh, spring training. Posted a 4.88 ERA last season, but the 4.35 FIP was more in line with his career 4.16 mark, so you know, a little better than the, the raw numbers looked. He's still rated just about at replacement level. And uh, Jerry DePoto said they, you know, they're basically slotting him in the, in the Chris Flexen rule to start this season yeah. Yeah. as the sixth guy. Major league arm. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's the type player you need to have. So the trade added $9 million. Especially with, with a young pitching staff as well. 
Yeah. So the trade added nine million in salary this season, although the Giants sent six million in cash to cover some of that difference. But long term gives the Mariners massively more payroll flexibility than they had with Robbie Ray on their books. Uh, they subtract at least nine point five million in salary in twenty five, pending that Hanniger player option, assuming he picks that up, and twenty five million in two thousand twenty six, which is the last year of Ray's deal. So. You know, the hope is that makes it easier to extend some of your young starting pitchers uh, and, you know, continue to to spend in Julio's prime years. This That's got to be the flexibility that Jerry DePoto has highlighted over and over again. Oh, and also just getting off Robbie Ray's contract. I mean, even getting any capable major leaguers for Robbie Ray, like that was, it was not a good contract at this point. It wasn't a good contract. I mean, he signed for maybe lower than you would expect for a Cy Young winner, but Robbie Ray was not somebody that you're looking at on the roster and saying to yourself, that's going to be a capable major league starter. But we'll always have the great moment of Robbie Ray's career. I don't remember what it was yet. Uh, there must have been a good start in there. I'm sure there were some good starts. But yeah, I mean, he didn't play up to this contract in 2022 before the injuries and even before the Jordan Olvera's home run. That will be I feel the like Cy winner. Like we were talking about the least... the most random Mariners single all-star Cy Young winner is like, there are just so many guys who've won Cy Youngs where you're like him. Yeah. It turns out that uh, pitching is pretty unpredictable. They should have worked the Cy Young for like three year spans for pitchers, like on a single season basis. Pitching is so random, way more so than batting, but this just the random Cy Young winners where you're like, Oh, I, I guess that guy won a Cy Young apparently. Did we say that Bill Swift won a Cy Young? He t- he did not. Sadly, he uh, finished second in the voting. Did you say in Cy Young or Bill Swift? I believe I did. He led the NL in ERA in nineteen ninety two, uh, and then uh, in ninety three again finished second in the voting. I have to assume that Greg Maddox would have been the winner that year. Yeah, he, he won the Cy Young. I, I have to assume that the Giants are expecting him to be the next Bill Swift, Robbie Ray. <laughs> they were they remembered that swindling of the Mariners. Uh, but let's talk about Luke Rayleigh, because to me, this was the one that was actually more exciting of the trades that happened. Yeah, I mean, vibes-wise, Hanniger very exciting. But yeah, Rayleigh is an interesting story. He had just 127 career at-bats before becoming a regular last year in Tampa Bay at age 28. He turned 29 in September. Uh, hit 19 home runs and 357 at-bats. His offensive profile is pretty similar to Mike Ford. You know, not a super high batting average. Uh, he's good. The Mariners have finally approved some strikeouts in the lineup, it turns out, in order to acquire Luke Rayleigh. But the difference between him and Mike Ford is Mike Ford was like a DH. Like you could stick him out there at oh, first yeah. base, but it wasn't going to go great. Rayleigh not only can play first base, which I think is interesting, potentially down the line, depending on how Ty France's season goes, but also played all three outfield spots in Tampa Bay. Like the idea of this archetype of player being in center field is just so mind-boggling to me that I can't imagine it. Uh, he probably won't play there in Seattle, obviously, with Julio Rodriguez, but uh, Jerry DePoto said he'd be a corner outfielder against right-handed pitching. And I think if you're looking at what the lineup looks like today, he's in a platoon in left field with doing more. I, I also think that's selling Luke Rayleigh short, though. On, on offensive war, I mean, his is better than, you know, Mike Ford has quite a few negatives in there throughout his career, but like, you know, last year, Mike Ward was at 0.6, and that was his best season since 2019. Luke Rayleigh offensive war last year was 2.6 wins. So, I, Luke Rayleigh is a much better offensive player 
than Mike Ford is right now. He has had a better season last year than Mike Ford has had his entire career. Kabi, like the versatility, it sucks to lose that, but I still felt Kabi definitely fell out of favor in this lineup by the end of the season. Had some nice moments, but when you look at the overall package as a hitter and what Luke Rayleigh is providing with the power, the ability for extra base hits, a little bit of flexibility, I, I honestly don't exactly understand why the Rays made this trade. I mean, Jose Caballero did have a pretty good war in large part because of his defensive contributions. Uh, outstanding base stealer was 26 of 29 stealing bases last year. And the Rays, I, I assume, you know, part of it is, look, the Rays are a very well-run organization. I don't think they're doing this completely ignorantly. Number one, the likelihood that Luke Rayleigh regresses to the mean somewhat given his sure. career track record. And number two, just positional needs lining up here between two teams that love to trade with each other. So, uh, you know, I think the report was that Caballero has penciled in, is their starting shortstop while they uh, await Wander Franca's legal status going forward and whether he's able to play it at some point. He's also uh, younger. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I get it, but I think Luke Rayleigh is just a better batter than Jose Caballero is right now. And do you know who this means good things for? Oh, Sam Hagerty. This is huge for Sam Hagerty. So, I mean, both you factor in, like, Cobby definitely, he, he Wally pipped Sam Hagerty, you know? Like, ha having that situation happen last year, I think for at least me personally, it was like, yeah, I like you, Cobby, but, like, be careful right now. <laughs> and and so I could never quite buy into the Jose Caballero. You know, people were just like, oh, he's the new Sam Hagerty. And I was like, first of all. So you get another Italian, more time on the field which is a huge factor. But I also think Sam Hagerty provides a different element than Kabi does. Well, he has the ability to play the outfield a little bit more credibly. He's a switch hitter for what that's worth. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are some reasons to, to favor him. Uh, you are looking at the potential scenario. If Tom Canzone wins what's probably the last spot on the, the roster, it's probably between him and Taylor and Trammell and some other candidates yes. at outfield. You could be looking at... Uh, a, a solid three Italian roster for the Mariners to start the season. Oh, I would assume that Canzone. So, I mean, we're, we're thinking of Hanniger as the starting right fielder right now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they're going to have to, just even giving Han given Hanniger's injury history, they're going to be penciling in that he's not playing 160 games. Of course. But I still am kind of thinking of that being Canzone's spot long-term. Um, so that you're saying right now the roster is right field Hanniger. Yep. Center field Julio. Yep. Left field Canzone. No, Ty France. Luke Rayleigh. Or left field Luke Rayleigh. Yeah. And Dylan Moore in a platoon, presumably. And, and, and then a platoon between Canzone and players like that as the fourth outfielder. Yep. First base Ty France. Yep. Second base Josh Rojas. Probably a platoon with Hagerty. Shortstop, J.P. Crawford. Yep. Third base, Luis Urias. Correct. Urias. And then Carver, Carver, Carver plus Cal uh, Rally behind the plate, slash DH. Yep. And then Sebi Zavala, presumably is your backup catcher, is the 13th guy on the roster. It's kind of not a bad roster. I mean, the upside here is I don't see a single Tommy Lestella. I it's hard to find the Tommy Lestellas until you're well into the season. You know, but... 
I, I think we could find the Tommy Lestella on opening day last year. But, you know, if you sit down at the table. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could. It was actually Tommy Lestella. <laughs> if you sit down at the, Tommy Lestella, at the table and don't see the Tommy Lestella, that means you <laughs> yeah. are the Tommy Lestella. Hopefully Sam Haggerty doesn't sit down at that table. Oh, um, I, I still think there are a couple of positions that could use upgrades. And, and they still need more major league talent. The high-end hitting is still pretty questionable to me. I mean, you're expecting a lot uh, from Garver, Cal Raleigh to repeat. Obviously, Julio's going to have a monster year. J.P. Crawford wasn't that great of a hitter two seasons ago. And I do think just penciling J.P. Crawford in as your leadoff hitter or a very solid offensive player, maybe he and Ty France kind of balance each other out or something like that. Ty France is a little bit better. J.P. is a little bit worse. I, I do think... I think it is a capable roster to compete for a playoff spot. Yep. I don't know if it's a capable roster to compete with the Rangers and the Astros, but I think it's a capable roster in general to compete for the playoffs. I mean, it's not like they finished that far behind those teams. And it's not like those teams have added a lot to their rosters this offseason. I, I think they'll be, they have, it's realistic for them to be in the mix with those teams. This It's kind of just incredible how low the threshold was for Jerry DePoto. Like, Really, these are not wild moves that Jerry Depoto made. It's not like you know they're like they're all nice moves, but between the signing and the couple of trades, that's kind of all we were looking for. It didn't need to be a splash. Yeah, I mean, just it's the tone started out so negative that nothing that they could have not done the rest of the offseason would have been as bad as what people were thinking at that point. It's it's like almost kind of genius to just set the expectations so low that you could just do anything slightly. It was again when the Seahawks drafted Charles Cross, we threw we fucking paraded in the streets, right? I think we threw a parade for them just just drafting Charles Cross. That was it. Just make making a normal pick. And I think that's what the Mariners did with this one. They just made some normal trades. Getting off Robbie Ray's contract long term also. Uh, I think opens up some flexibility. I mean, not I think. It definitely opens up some flexibility for the roster and some places that they're going to be able to spend. I do also think the front and, office is on notice for adding payroll mid-season if they're in the mix because uh, they are going to end up coming coming in with a lower payroll barring a pretty dramatic addition to the roster even before you factor in the $6 million that they're getting from the Giants. They're sending some money uh, to the to the Braves, but uh, they're they're getting more than they're sending out. So, but plus there's also young superstar level talent on both offense and pitching. So I I think that's kind of what you look for is you want very very good players with you know between George Kirby Castillo already is, but like George Kirby and Julio, there are players who. It wouldn't be impossible for George Kirby to win the Cy Young next year, and not at all. It, it it wouldn't be impossible for Julio to win the MVP next year, and if one of those players makes even a slight leap, I think the Mariners could be in conversation for one of the better records in the AL. There you go. That's it. That's all it took. It didn't take that much, and and in addition from an AL West rival as well. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the roundup, starting with the red hot 
Seattle Kraken. The temperatures are cold. The Kraken are red hot. They concluded their homestand with a 4-1 win over Ottawa last Thursday, then started a six-game East Coast road trip on Tuesday with a 5-2 win in Buffalo, extending their winning streak to seven games, one short of the franchise record. They've now taken points in their last 11 games, dating back to December 12th, which will be nearly a full month by the time they next take the ice on Thursday at Washington. All right, that's it. I'm going to start paying attention to the Kraken. There you go. That's all it took. It's seven yeah, consecutive I'm in. wins. I'm in. I mean, if we were in January, you know what I mean? We're getting closer to the playoffs. I, I Maybe all it took was all the football ending the exact that, same day, basically. That didn't work. <laughs> all right, a little Sounders news. Not having a basketball. And also the ba- college basketball season ending that same weekend. Somehow. Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, Sounder at Heart reported the Sounders have finalized the signing of Brazilian center back Nathan, who spent the last three seasons with the San Jose Earthquakes, missing all of 2023 due to an ACL tear, suffered in February before becoming a free agent. Uh, Nathan, who was previously a starter in San Jose, adds depth at center back for the Sounders, who look increasingly likely to trade Javier Arriaga and get some salary flexibility that way. When they when they announce the players, you know, they do the like last name, right? You have to see <laughs> in the last name. It's just going to be like... Brazilian center back, and everybody's going to yell Nathan. I mean, he does have a last name, Cardoso, so presumably they will chant that, but he does does go mononymically as so many of his Brazilian brethren do. Oh, and... stick with the one name, Nathan. Don't even tell them your last name. <laughs> you're not Rogers Nelson, you're Prince <laughs> Nathan. All right, well, we have a rebranded section and the roundup because although they're. Wow. Con- Rumored sale is not yet complete. It is official. The Rain are rebranding back to Seattle Rain FC after having spent one season as Rain FC following their move to Tacoma in 2019 and then becoming OL Rain after their purchase by OL Group, which is currently selling the team. They are returning to their classic logo with the classic dark blue color as well as adding royal gold to the palette in place of the silver that was originally part of the logo in their uniforms. It's a good look. I'm so excited to have it back and to have Seattle back in the name of this team now that they are playing their games in Seattle, although they are headquartered, of course, for now in Tequila. There we go. I'm not sure about this new logo. It's basically the old logo. What are you not sure about it? I okay. I'll accept it. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to give it time. I'm not sure about the color palette for a Seattle team. It feels a little bit like uh, uh, San Jose Earthquakes to me or something. I I don't get that note. I mean, blue is kind of the consistent link. It's, a lot of the teams have green here. You have to generally, other than the Huskies, you have to have either green or blue. But I like having the gold in there to mix it up a little bit. Okay. But worse news for Seattle Rain FC on the field as uh, last week, completely a long-rumored mer- move, their stars, Rose Lavelle and Emily Sonnet, both signed with reigning MWSL oh champions God. Gotham FC. What is this, the WNBA again? It does seem that way. We're in our super oh. team era in women's pro sports. Continuing offseason, they'd already seen Gotham, which beat the reign in the final last year in San Diego. Add fellow US WNT members, Crystal Dunn and Tierna Davidson. God, this begins the Clone Wars that, with the NWSL. Uh, both Lavelle and Sonnet were unrestricted free agents. Lavelle played two plus seasons for the Reign, resulting in the 2022 NWCL Shield and last year's trip to the final, but started just four league matches last season between injuries and playing in the World Cup. 
Sonnet, who was acquired before the season in exchange for this year's reign first-round pick, was a bigger part of their run starting all 19 league games she played, plus all three playoff matches. So certainly can be difficult to re replace, and we have not seen Oil Reign make any significant additions to the roster yet in uh, this offseason. All right, we're getting the take machine going. No. <laughs> <laughs> Seattle Rain do something. It's also very funny because, of course, the team they're signing with is owned by Super, in part. Uh, so you may ask, how can Gotham FC do this? Well, with the new TV deal that's kicking in that we talked about uh, dramatically, you know, exponentially increasing the NWSL's TV revenue, the salary cap rose to $2.75 million from last season. It was $1.375 million, so half that in terms of the base. Plus, you were allowed six hundred dollars allocation money last season. There is still some allocation money being used, but uh, not, not nearly as much of it anymore. Uh, with that dramatic increase in the cap, which is only going to keep going up from here, which is is great to see, but uh, don't love to see it concentrating all the talent on another New York women's pro sports team. And where does Gotham FC play? I believe they play in Harrisonburg, New Jersey, along with uh, the the Red Bulls. All right, let's get into UW basketball. First, the women who went zero and two in the Bay Area. Uh, disappointing loss Friday at Cal. They shot just 35.5% from the field. Eladine had 24 points on 9 of 18 shooting, but nobody else scored more than 10 is Delea Daniels, who went 1 of 11 on, against her former team, and Chloe Briggs, who went 2 of 10, particularly struggled. Huskies played much better Sunday at number 8 Stanford, still lost that one 71 to 59. Uh, did have four players in double figures led by 15 from Daniels who bounced back. But uh, Cameron Brink had 16 points and 16 boards in 25 minutes. Front court mate Kiki Irafan had 19 points and nine boards in 23 minutes. The Cardinal had nearly as many offensive rebounds with 18 as UW had defensive rebounds, 19. Uh, kudos to Tara Vanderveer. Sunday was her 1200th career win, moving her, I believe it's two away from Mike Krzyzewski's Division I record for men's or women's basketball coaches. Huskies back home on Sunday for their first Pac-12 home game against Washington State, looking for a sweep of the Apple Cup series. Cougs have started this conference play 0-3. They also were swept in the Bay Area, so badly in need of a win after what was a very solid non-conference season. You'll recall when these teams met back in December in Pullman, Washington State was ranked at the time. Wild. Utah men's basketball, a heartbreaker, another heartbreaker Thursday against Oregon. The Huskies led by two with 331 left in their Pac-12 home opener and then tied the game at 67, 72, and 74, the latter with 39 Ugh. seconds left on a pair of Keon Brooks free throws before Jermaine Kusnard gave Oregon the lead with 12 seconds left and Paul Mulcahy missed a go-ahead three attempt on the Huskies' final possession, but it probably should not have been that close. UW shot 12 of 22 on free throws in this one, including a shocking 5 of 12 for Brooks, who's normally been an outstanding free throw shooter. I I was at basketball practice, so I saw none of this game, but like I just being alerted to it was really devastating. Not only to lose to Oregon, but to lose in that fashion at the time of year. Like, this is the kind of loss that's going to keep them out of the NCAA tournament. And and you talk about the, the dial. We talk about the the what is the Pete Carroll? Do we have a dial or a? a well, that's is a that Pete a roller coaster, coaster with Pete? 
that's the Pete coaster. Okay, what do we have for, for Mike Hopkins? The will he get an extension dial? Because it definitely turned a different direction these this last weekend. I mean, it was it was along the same lines of what we talked about last week, where just kind of you you know none of these losses individually as they started zero three in conference play were bad, but you had to win at least one of them to you know, kind of still feel good about your chances. And Oregon is maybe the toughest of these three to lose because that is a team you legitimately, you know, you were talking about the importance of getting a signature win, but Oregon is a team you legitimately could be comp- competing against on the bubble. And I guess Colorado now is uh, showing up as on the bubble in their own right. The Huskies no longer among even the top eight teams out. So uh, they, they mean, have why slipped would they be? They're one in three in Pac-12 play. What, what about their profile? Sometimes you just, have to win games i agree that that's kind of it they're in the part of the season where winning games is important and they're not doing very good at that so that's why this loss was brutal to oregon they needed a sweep in these two because they already had lost the previous two they needed one of those before they needed one of these though and as more weeks pass, like all of a sudden it's putting a lot of pressure on some games that are going to be a lot harder to win. And they be- basically need to beat every single team that they should beat from this point forward and also pick off some wins against some teams that they shouldn't beat. I mean, I think you're you're still a little dire because they're going to be favored in like Ken Palm has them favored in four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Wait, let me use these. Yeah, seven, eight, nine, ten. 12 of their remaining 16 games they're favored in. So if they win just the games they're supposed to win, they're in great shape. You think they're in if they win all 12 of those games? Yeah. I mean, at that point, they'd have 21 wins. Okay. In a power conference with some pretty good I mean, that's, non-conference wins. That's kind of what I'm saying. Okay. So you're saying it's just the base of they need to win every single game because they're think- still at that point. With those I don't 12. think they I mean, need to the... win every single game. There's there's still a lot of time left in the How season. How many conference wins do they need to get to right now? If you just had to pick a number. I mean, I think they need to be at 11 to have a legitimate shot going into the Pac-12 tournament. So they need to win 10 more games. Yeah. And I mean, their Ken Palm projection is 10 and 10. So that's not far off. 12 and 8, I think you'd feel good about their chances. 11 and 9, though, it's like, well, you know, maybe if they get to the final and, and so they're lose favored there, in those they games, okay. but the Ken Palm projection is still lower because because the they're not 100% game, on any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, I'm they're honestly surprised. Win probability in the game is 84%. Games. I mean, they're Against. still not playing poorly. They, they're lo- their three losses they started 0 3 in conference play came by a combined 11 points. Like again, it, yes, it just you need requires to win those games. But... Other people noticing these things, though. Right now, they are at the whim of a committee noticing that these things are happening, and the way that you get them to notice the things are happening is by winning games, not by playing close. Playing close ultimately is nice, and it's good for Ken Palm, and it's good for the stats. But people, in the end, generally are going to look at the wins. I agree, but the point is, playing close against good teams is generally translates to more likely beating bad teams. Now, the Huskies weren't very impressive in the fashion in which they did finally get on the board with the Pac-12 win on Saturday against Oregon State, but they did get it. Uh, That one, they had to sweat it out after leading by as many as 12 in the second half. Beavers got within four in the final minute, but uh, the Huskies hung on for the 79-72 win. Brooks scoring 26 points in that one. 
Oregon stayed in it largely because Jordan Pope had 29 points on 10 of 17 shooting, including five three-pointers. Wow, I saw none of that either, but that sounds like some Oregon State shit. (laughs) I I don't know what Jordan Pope's stat line looks like over the course of this season. Uh, They said he patterned his game after Steph Curry and Trey Young, and there was a lot of step-back threes in this one. He's at 37% from three over the course of the season, so it was actually the the 7 of 10 or the 5 of 7 inside the arc that was more out of line with his season performance. I feel like pattern your game after Steph Curry and Trey Young usually leads to like one of the worst basketball players you've ever seen. He's he's very good. He's not the reason that Oregon State is bad. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, I I You know what? We haven't really talked about this. We've only talked about football prior to the conference realigning. But like, I actually in basketball, I like the idea of playing whenever more than the Thursday-Saturday schedule. Obviously, getting away from Pac-12 basketball refs is going to be an all-time great move, but like, it, it'll be interesting to play these Big Ten teams because we just haven't done it that much. But like, the history that we have with Oregon State, honestly, it's kind of the same as the history that we have with Oregon State of just <laughs> like constantly frustrating games and players where you're like, there's no way that guy can hit that shot. Or whatever, and it's just been generationally. But I do think in basketball, the the just you play the team so many times because you play them each a couple of times a year. Like we have actually more history with these teams in basketball than we do in football, and maybe even you know like longer term because of that. So uh, that actually will be a frustrating piece or a sad piece of moving conferences is that we just don't really have. I don't feel like we have a rivalry with UCLA or USC or even really like Oregon to that great of an extent in basketball. I think there used to be much more of one in like I, in the Bender era. I feel like UCLA was a more legitimate rival, at least at the, the high points of that one. And then, you know, when Romar was the coach, like beating UCLA meant more back then. Oregon with Aaron Brooks. I think Ryan Appleby and Aaron Brooks got into it, right? Well, Yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a Mina Kimes level trader, Aaron Brooks. But uh, oh no, we ended up siding with Aaron Brooks on that one. Let's be clear. Why? Because Ryan Appleby like shook off oh, his no, no, apology. No, in the fight in the fight, but we could side with Aaron Brooks in the fight. But choosing to go to Oregon from UW when Lorenzo Romar is the head coach at UW is a was questionable. I mean, I guess he was. I forget when Aaron Brooks. Maybe they they must have recruited him. Oh yeah, I'm sure they would have recruited Aaron Brooks. I don't know. Mina Kimes isn't actually a traitor. She still cheers for UW. Uh, Aaron Brooks' first year there was Romar's first year at UW, so he actually probably had already committed to Oregon before Romar was hired. All right, so this weekend, mild pass for for not committing to Bob Bender. Obviously, Mina and and many people, including uh, our Yale alumni who got shouted out on the post game pod uh, last night, which I, by the way we haven't mentioned it. You should listen to that if you haven't already. I suppose uh, it, they should definitely cheer for UW, even if they didn't go there. Uh, quick... I feel like that was the most muted podcast that we've had. Maybe like. There was one time we did a, a, a state of the arena podcast, which was just like a straight like interview podcast. I don't know about that. About it was pretty neutral though, right? It was calm. 
I've worked myself up about the refs more today. We can talk about the Huskies in a second. Uh, well, no, Wilhelm Breidenbach has now scored double figures in three consecutive games, played the vast is. majority of the second half. I don't think Mia was in foul trouble. I was just rewatching this one on Synergy, so I didn't have like the full context of the broadcast. But like, Breidenbach's good, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Huskies overall dropped seven spots in Ken Palm this weekend, just to note that. Any word on Frank Kepnong? Uh, he, Percy Allen reported that he worked out before the game. So we'll see, uh, probably I mean, he's going to play again at some point. Huge difference. Not having Frank kept up without question. Yeah. Um, no, Braxton Mia only had three fouls. So they easily could have come back. He played nine minutes on Saturday. Breidenbach played 28. So pretty wild how, how important Breidenbach has become as one of the original Breidenbachers. So this is a key weekend for the Huskies where they need to come away with two wins, I think. And that's a, a funny thing to say about the, these two teams. Both of them, I believe, made the NCAA tournament last year. And it's the mixed home road weekend that used to be played in December, but was moved this year because of the calendar. I think there's one extra weekend, basically, because of the fact that they played the first weekend of conference play at the end of December. Uh Huskies play Thursday against Arizona State at home, then travel on Sunday to play at UCLA. Huskies kind of lucked out on both of these, obviously, by missing Arizona at home, although that's usually a fun game. And then USC is the road. will not play them on the road. Uh, Sun Devils went 6-5 and five in non-conference, including a bad loss at number 223 San Diego, but have started 4-0 in the Pac-12. They swept at the Bay Area schools, then beat both Utah and Colorado at home, knocking Colorado onto the bubble. Still only ranked 101st in Ken Palm. Their defense has been outstanding. They're number 131 in adjusted defensive efficiency, but they're outside the top 200 in adjusted offensive efficiency, shooting 49% on twos, 31% on threes, and unbelievably 63% on free throws as a team. Opponents have predictably shot the lowest three-point percentage against them in conference play that goes into that 4-0 start, but they're also benefiting from the eligibility of transfer Adam Miller, who started his career as an NBA prospect at Illinois before playing a year at USC, at LSU. He was one of the two-time transfers that became automatically, an el uh, became automatically eligible after uh, Raekwon Battle's suit against the NCAA resulted in the NCAA ruling all of those players. Uh, available to play. He's played the last six games, is averaging 13.3 points per game, and has gone 10 of 26 from three in Pac-12 play. Arizona State led by junior guard Frankie Collins, who's a volume scorer, but top 10 in the country in steal rate. UCLA, after making their third consecutive trip to the Sweet 16 last year, started the year number 26 in Ken Palm, pretty high expectations. But after a 3-0 start against dreadful competition, have won just two of their last 10 games. <laughs> including a home loss to Cal State, Cal State Northridge and a sweep at home against the lowly Bay Area schools. Man, I could just feel this loss coming. I know. Their lone Pac-12 win is by the same 69-62 final as the Huskies had against Oregon State, albeit on the road for UCLA. They have dropped to 107 in Ken Palm with a similar profile to Arizona State. They're 36th adjusted defensive efficiency, but number 218 on offense with an effective field goal percentage ranked 332nd in the country. They're shooting 45% on twos and 29% on threes, taking a lot fewer of those than Arizona State. 
Uh, still have to be wary of sophomore center Adem Bona, who's shooting 60% on twos, 24th in the nation in block rate. But sophomore Will McClendon is the only UCLA player hitting better than 30% of his threes on at least 15 attempts. What what happened to UCLA? I mean, aside from losing NBA-level talent, but like you would assume that a UCLA program, especially one that had made the NCAA tournament or the Sweet 16 three years in a row, would be able to replenish that talent pretty quickly. It's kind of baffling. Like I said, the expectations were reasonably high for this team. Uh, Sebastian Mack was a pretty well-regarded recruit. He's basically become their go-to player on offense, and and his kind of his efficiency has struggled under that weight: forty-one percent on twos, twenty-eight percent on threes. And then for some reason, they have decided to heavily recruit international players in the front court. Uh, Adembona has is one of those and has worked out quite well. The other guys they have are considered NBA prospects, but haven't really contributed yet this season. And again, they just kind of like, they forgot to recruit shooting. It's like very rare that you look at UW against a team and are like, oh yeah, they've got a huge shooting edge in this one. They forgot to recruit shooting. I mean, they obviously, the reason that they went international, right? They're trying to do the Gonzaga thing. Is that what's going on? I, I mean, I guess so. And, you know, Arizona has obviously done that very successfully, but uh Arizona, which is hitting 38.5% from three-point range, did not forget shooting. It's like, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. It's, it's like Billy Joel is now a punk artist or something. <laughs> like, sometimes it just doesn't suit you. Maybe just recruit the best players from the United States, UCLA. Or maybe, you know, USC kind of became the cool school uh, to go to because that's obviously, like, recruiting-wise, the, the more in-demand school in LA. Uh, but I have a question for you unrelated to both of these because I was kind of unaware. He wasn't on your players to watch list or anything, but a player who I really liked in college, Jaime Hawkes, right? Yeah. He's too, on the heat now. A little too prominent to be on the uh, players to watch list. Yeah, Jaime Hawkes. I had no idea what team he was on, so I learned that recently. And is he hooping on the heat? Well, you you weren't aware of this because like he was a key point of negotiation in the hypothetical heat blazers Damian Lillard trade negotiations, which apparently never actually happened because the two teams didn't actually talk. Like Blazers fans spent the entire offseason dim- diminishing Hakez's trade value. And like, boy, he's he's pretty awesome right now. Like, especially with what's happened with Robert Williams' unfortunate injury. Like that Miami package is looking way better than what they got right now. Obviously, the traffics are still coming down the road and they're gonna be great for them, but it's an interesting outcome. Uh, Hawkins was not a very good three-point shooter at UCLA. He did really everything else well, I would say. And, you know, older players do tend to be pretty risky as NBA first-round picks. Uh, the Blazers are perhaps seeing this with Chris Murray, who has yet to really contribute at all as a four-year college guy. But Hawkins, I guess his three-point shooting has fallen off in recent weeks. He's down to 35%. But uh, I think I saw that he's played more minutes in per game in the fourth quarter than anyone else in the NBA. Anybody like, in the league? Like he's finishing every game for them is a reserve. This is pretty wild. He's he's just been awesome. Oh, how did the what pick was he? He was the 18th pick. Okay. Where did the Lakers draft? Did they have a pick? The Lakers drafted 17th. They took Jalen Hood Shafino. Is he doing anything? No, I mean he's also a one and done guy, so it's not Quite apples to oranges, but uh, I mean, in in fairness, how the Lakers let this happen as a sort of kind of Lakers fan, I guess, 
like how the Lakers let this happen with Jaime Hawkins in their backyard getting drafted a pick later to the heat of oh, all teams. But it's the next three picks. Because the pick right after Hawkins was on our players to watch. Brandon Pajemski. Oh. Who's already starting at times for the Warriors. And then Cam Whitmore, who was considered like a likely top five pick, but dropped to the 20th pick where Houston got him. He hasn't played a lot this season, but he's been hooping lately. So it looks like the next three picks after the Lakers could all be really, really oh quality God. players. Is Rob Plinka still running their front office? Yes. Retire, bitch. I mean, the Lakers Same have take. actually... What What do they do well? The Lakers have actually drafted quite well, uh, especially, you know, kind of the later picks and then getting Austin Reeves as an undrafted free agent. But uh, uh, Hood Shafino was one of my least favorite prospects relative to where he was considered by experts. He's kind of, he's like huge, but specializes in pull-up too. It's like, if everything goes right for him, he's DeMar DeRozan. Should we know your feelings? <laughs> Just not my favorite player archetype. <laughs> your feelings have been very clear on that one. I mean, uh, that Chicago would... Bulls, Chicago Bulls fans definitely knew your feelings too. I mean, obviously, that would be an amazing outcome if they got a DeMar DeRozan level player at the 17th pick. But I, it's one of those things, though, where you see like the star linebacker end up with the Steelers or whatever. Or and you're just like, Patrick we, all, we all let this happen. Yeah. Like, like what of those players ending up on one of those teams? No, oh, yeah. I mean, all the shit that I've talked about, Jalen Carter, but like Jalen Carter ending up on the Eagles is just like, you're looking around the room and you're like, we all did this. We all let this happen. And I feel like. Hawkes ending up on the heat is just like a that this is what we're doing here at NBA. <laughs> uh that was an aside that I wanted to ask you about. We'll be back with uh Jaime Hawkes' spot in my rookie rankings on Monday along with Bobby Marks on ESPN Plus. Can you can you give us a tease for where he ranks? I have not, I have not started it, but Heat fans okay. were up like he was I think he might have been fifth last time, and Heat fans were furious at how low I had him. <laughs> and two of the guys ahead of him, to be clear, are Victor Wembanyama and Jed Holmgren. <laughs> Bro, the the mind of an NBA fan is so warped. I I feel like more so than any sport, right? Uh, I don't know. The, it, the, it the is probably seeking of people hating on your own players is like out of control in the NBA. It's it because is... they don't actually. People don't. People do watch the games, but nobody cares about the games. There's a difference. You watch the games, but you don't care about them, and so that makes the people complaining online way more interesting. Also, the NBA fans are by far the most online of any sport. Oh, oh yes. Oh my God, they are online. All right, that brings I hope us it's me someday. <laughs> to UW football. Uh, do you have further thoughts on the title game? Nope. Uh, oh. oh, it was the return of our old friend Awkward Silence. That was disgruntled silence. Thank you. Uh, I I still just think it was a really frustrating game. And I think UW had, I think they actually went into this with the right game plan. And you don't think they ran too much early? Maybe a little, but 
I don't know. People just grabbing those clips of like, I, I think that how how open Jalen McMillan would have been on that screen pass. Oh, there's there's a lot of those plays though, like things that we did well throughout the season that we just didn't do in this one game, and like it kind of in this very moment it reminds you of all the times that the team wasn't very good throughout the year. And that's why if I had to have any concern, like if the Seahawks were talking about drafting Michael Penix, I'd be like, eh, there were some moments where I was like, I don't think Michael Penix is very good. Um, and I think that that kind of, they looked more like that team than they did the team that played against Oregon or against Texas. And I think because it had happened consecutive times, how good they looked in those games back to back, we sort of expected that the weather was a part of it or Michael Penix's injury, but like they kind of just were really, really close a lot, but never quite had the play. And it, it, it ended up being frustrating. Uh, I mean, I, I think know. the one thing Michigan it, fans will probably point out is that their win probability never got below 79% in the second half of this game. So even though it felt like the Huskies were close, like Michigan was in control still the entire way. Now, it probably would have gotten lower than that had that Roma Dunze pass stood. Yes. I mean, th that's the one that like they finally broke through. And to have that called back is, you know, it just completely changed the entire game, obviously. But like, I, I wish that we could have that one back. There was a story about Kalen DeBoer losing in his first year uh, at North Dakota, right? And then retooling after that and getting bigger on the lines as like, that that's what needs to be done. And you know my feelings about college football. I mean, this might be my feelings about the NFL as well, but... Well, you've been poo-pooing drafty a left tackle the entire time here, so apparently they're not. Have I? Yeah. No, I'm not poo-pooing drafting a left tackle. I'm just saying that the, the margin for what we're celebrating is very low. It was the right draft pick. I'm happy that they had that left tackle. He's had a great season. And I think that that left tackle on the Seahawks is who's going to help them unlock the offense long term. But like, don't, don't, I don't want you to misconstrue that as poo pooing. Okay. I guess is what I'm saying. Because that's not what it is. Drafting a left tackle is the most important thing you can do. Uh, but I do think to me, Dra I've always said this is the most important thing you can do. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, the biggest difference to me and to everybody, I think, between the really, really, really good programs and programs like UW is talent on the lines and size on the lines. And UW this year was funny that to see people talk about just how much Michigan's D line abused the offense, the Washington offensive line, because this was the number one group in the country. And they did win the award offensive line wise. I still just I don't think that they were actually quite at that level. No, they they clearly weren't. Like they won this award in large part because of the fact that Michael Penix Jr. is extremely good at escaping pressure. Like we've seen a number of stats. I believe it was College Football Insight that, uh, and it was in Danny Kelly's piece on the Ringer on Monday about uh, Penix's draft stock that he's like off the charts in terms of pressure to sack ratio in a in terms of how low it is. So. I think Penix, sacks are a quarterback stat, but people voting yeah. for offensive line awards are considering it an offensive line stat. So, I mean, if there is a way, I, I also at the same time think that 
pretty much every coach around the country gets this. You know, Kalen DeBoer didn't just discover that offensive lines are important. So it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. It's a lot easier to find skill position talent. And even when you see the players in the transfer portal, there are a lot of running backs, wide receivers, quarterbacks in the transfer portal. The Huskies can end up with a quarterback. I think they can find a pretty good quarterback almost anywhere. And I think a pretty good quarterback in the right situation. Michael Penix might be a pretty good quarterback in the right situation. If we were being completely honest with ourselves, but like, if they are able to improve the line significantly as they go to the Big Ten, that's going to be the difference between UW having one nice year and UW being a perennial power. So, but also, I think there are some people who are a little bit too negative about them. And like we talked about, they binned all these New Year's Six Bowls. They didn't, they like, they went as an at large team a lot of these times, or at least one of the times, right? To all these New Year's Six Bowls. It's not like, they were lucking their way in. The conference was maybe slightly down, but like this is a culmination of a generation for UW. And I don't think that if if Michigan had had this exact same timeline that they had up to this point, people would be like, that's a great generation Michigan had. That is just the beginning and they're going to keep going. I think because it's UW, people assume this is it. But to me, they're well, probably going to be worse next year. Because Michigan a lot of very good talent is leaving. Michigan doesn't have a stretch where they went like seven years without going to a bowl game in the in the past 20 years. I mean, years. Michigan, th- look, their history is obviously overall is amazing, but like there still were some Brady Hoke years. There, there was quite a while in between. I think there are levels to this. I mean, I agree that those were down seasons and frustrating years. Uh, they made the bowl game, bowl, a bowl game Every year but one, Brady Hoke was there. They missed bowl games back-to-back in Rich Rodriguez's first two seasons after replacing yeah, Lloyd Carr. That's the, that's the only time they have missed bowl games in consecutive years since the 1970s, back when it was Rose Bowl or bust. I'm not saying that, that UW is at the same level as Michigan is. Michigan's one of these best programs in the country, but like, there have been some down seasons. It took still a... Jim Harbaugh is probably, maybe aside from Nick Saban, the best coach in all of college football. Jim Harbaugh is so overly qualified for that job. He went to a fucking Super Bowl, right? Like, he didn't he didn't leave the Niners in shame. He wasn't fired from the Niners. Like, he also did a pretty awesome job at Stanford. It should be noted. Jim Harbaugh, as much as I, as little as I want to give him credit, Jim Harbaugh's up there with the best college football coaches of all time. So, like, it. this is a Jim Harbaugh national championship more than it is a Michigan national championship. He happens to be the coach at Michigan, but, like, Jim Harbaugh did this. They should be thinking they're lucky stars for him and doing everything that they can to try to maintain him as head coach. I so, mean, I, I think that's fair. I think the other thing that's probably worth noting is, you know, Michigan before Jim Harbaugh, like, you're comparing... And I think this will generally work to UW's favor, but maybe not relative to the Michigans and Ohio States and Penn States of the world, was in a world where there was less, like there was a less direct correlation between your resources as an institution and your roster, because you had to do it a little more indirectly by figuring out you the by figuring out who was going to be the best player <laughs> the, among the high tickets for the games and how to get them onto the sideline. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fair point. But what I'm saying is, in the tra- in the transfer portal era, I do think there is probably likely to be a bit more concentration of talent 
at oh, these yeah. historical powers. No, I mean, and that's what UW, I, I think UW already has gotten pretty significant talent through the transfer portal. Having the season is an important season transfer portal-wise. And when you look at the players that are coming in, they've got, I think it's seven players, all of whom are probably going to be starters next year. Or on I, don't the field. I don't know if they're all going to be starters, but yeah. They, uh, should, we, all... should we talk about a couple of these transfers that we have not talked about previously? Wait, so no, I just want to offer, just finish that thought though, which okay. is on the lines, which is something that Kalen DeBoer is going to focus on. UW has a handful of things going for them. If they're competing generally, Oregon is obviously a tough competition. There's They're competing at a national level for a lot of players, especially transfer players. But as a byproduct of being in the Big Ten and being one of two teams in the Big Ten in the Northwest, UW has now elevated themselves past quite a few programs. And recruits are going to notice this. The national exposure, when you talk about looking at the ratings for that game, it was true across all college football games this last year. College football is more important right now than it was five years ago. But you, you're just you're categorically wrong about college football. But being the only team in the Northwest, or alongside Oregon, being one of two teams in the Northwest, in the Big Ten, when they're competing with Stanford for players, the next Foster Serrell is going to UW. And those players, the education and stuff like that matters. TV exposure, being in a place where there's a relative level of certainty is going to matter. I don't think they're going to be able to compete with Alabama, Georgia, Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State for offensive linemen. Do I think that they could compete with USC? Probably. And do I think that they could compete with just that second tier down? Can they go into the Midwest and can they pluck some players away from some of those those territories? the hogs in Wisconsin and in Minnesota and in Iowa and places like that. If all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you don't have to be where it's freezing cold all the time. You can still play big 10 football, get in front of your friends and your family. And you could be in Seattle, fucking Washington with this offense on the other side. Like I, I think that UW has a chance to build something. Not a, I don't think they're going to be one of the five or six best programs in the country, but I think they could be at a point where they make the playoffs every three years or so. And in the same place, like I think they could be at the place that Penn State is at, where they're a consistently pretty good team if they can maintain the coach and if they can avoid any sort of severe embarrassment or something like that. Like we have to see what this transition is going to look like. I think it'll be a relatively seamless transition to the Big Ten. But given all those things and knowing that Kalen DeBoer wants to think about the lines, like they should be spending so much of their energy and time and resources building the lines and trying to dominate there. And it's what they have to do in the Big Ten. And that's how when they go into these competitions, if they make the playoff and they're playing against teams from the SEC, from the Big 12, possibly from the ACC, if they let any of them in, like they have to be able to out-physical those teams. So... I, I hope that that is something that Kalen DeBoer is able to do. And the offensive line is great this year. Like, we're talking about them playing against fucking Michigan. Yeah. They, they, Michigan, they, they handled their business against Texas, which exactly. was also... That's what I'm a, saying. I think they did a great job so far, and I think Kalen DeBoer, sh he should look at this and always be trying to get better because you can, but, like, they did pretty fucking good. They out-physicaled every... They out-physicaled Oregon. Dylan Johnson ran for 150 yards against Oregon. And there's a lot of money going to those recruits. And there's a lot of stars on those recruits. 
So I think what they did was very, very impressive. And there is another level to get to. And I think that's what Michigan taught us. So I, I just, I hope that that's what's able to happen for this program. I did want to say kind of quickly on this on this topic, one thing we didn't mention in the postgame pod is we've talked a bit about the idea of Pac-12 teams bringing more of that offensive style to the Big Ten next season and beyond. Monday night's game was very much a Big Ten game. Michigan was able to impose their will stylistically by taking away the big play from the Huskies and with the pressure that they were able to put on Michael Penix Jr. in that one. And so that was interesting in kind of the, the first salvo between these two teams. I I agree that that's the case. I think it's going to be not an instant thing. I think it's going to be a slow chip away. And all of a sudden, when there's a really, really, really good USC team, and and Michigan and Ohio State are like, oh shit, they are playing at a different level than us. Like, I I agree that they were able to impose their will physically on UW, and it was a Big Ten type of game. I still think that's going to change, though. What what that means like it's it never happens instantly and i guess that's the other thought that i had was like you people think that these these runs or dynasties last forever and maybe this is a bad thing for UW, but like seeing how down clemson is when there was a time when clemson looked like they were the only competitor with alabama as at a extraordinarily high level in the country and now they're they just weren't that good of a team this year in the same way that alabama was the team and now george is the team like these things change over time and they can change very, very quickly. And I think people treat them when you're in a moment, you feel like that moment is going to last forever until it doesn't. As a reminder, that down was they finished 22nd in the polls. UW once went 0-12 in the season. So there's, there's a lot further not, down to go. A lot further down to go. Cle- Clemson went from being being a fine program to being the number two program in the country, football-wise. And now they're not. All right, some UW news. Pete Thamel, my ESPN colleague, reported that Jalen Polk is declaring for the NFL draft. Uh, despite playing four years in college, Polk actually had two years of eligibility remaining due to both the COVID season and an injury redshirt in 2021. Run it back, Jalen. <laughs> at UW. But uh, no surprise, he's heading to the NFL after he broke out with 69 catches for 1,159 yards, nine touchdowns, plus a rushing touchdown this season. I, To me, I think Jalen Polk is an example that Kevin DeBoer can really use in recruiting transfers. This is somebody who came from Texas Tech without a lot of hype. Like, I remember we talked about him a lot, largely because this happened during the depths of COVID, if I recall correctly. And develops into someone who you know i think has a pretty good shot of going on the first two days of the nfl draft absolutely uh on 3.com reported that backup cornerback jv on green has submitted his notification to transfer green played as a two freshman in 2022 uh and then saw action every game this season but was below other returning players on the cornerback jeff shard so not a terribly surprising move here so i mentioned a couple of incoming transfers that we have not yet talked about 
Uh, Cal wide receiver Jeremiah Hunter is one of the players who will be called on to, you know, step up with uh, Jalen Polk headed to the NFL. Obviously, Roma Dunze hasn't declared yet, but he's gone. And uh, we'll see what happens with Jalen McMillan, whether he decides to utilize his injury redshirt. You've got Giles Jackson coming back, Jeremy Bernard in a bigger role, Denzel Boston. But uh, Jeremy Hunter, Jeremiah Hunter, I should say, is going to be a big part of this as well. In his final year of eligibility, had at least 60 catches each of the last two years. Averaged 16.1 yards per reception in 2022 when he nearly hit 1,000 yards, just 11.6 this year as part of a uh, a weak Cal offense. Obviously, he'll be in a better situation, I think, coming to UW. Did have a career-high seven touchdowns, one of which came at UW as part of a five-catch for 85-yard game against the Huskies. I think this is an awesome pickup Yeah, for them. I mean, he's going to contribute right away. And then I don't know if you've seen Silas Bolden also oh, I have from seen. Morgan State. Oh he's, my God, would it be nice to get him? He's visiting the Huskies among several other power schools. So we'll see on that one. Uh, and then tight end Trey Watson, who was originally rooted, recruited to Fresno State by Kalen DeBoer, uh, also has one year of eligibility remaining, had a career-high 38 catches for 378 yards, four TDs last year. This is a position where the Huskies are going to lose You know, their, their two top players in Devin Culp and Jack Westover. Uh, have again some young guys. Josh Cuevas got a, got a surprising target during the second half last night uh, that he was hit during and couldn't come down with. Uh, they've got Ryan Otten, younger brother of Cade in the mix there. Quentin Moore, who had the big touchdown against Oregon, but uh, a good position, I think, to add some additional depth and certainly experience at the FBS level. And then the other bit of transfer news is that Dylan Morris is headed to James Madison, according to 247sports.com. Uh, Dukes went 11-1 under Kurt Signetti last year, earning Signetti the Indiana job. They hired Bob Chisney from Holy Cross as a replacement, and their quarterback, Jordan McLeod, has submitted a notification of transfer. So an opportunity for Morris to go in and start there for a team that, well, it's not in a Power 5 conference, certainly was competing at a high level this season. I thought this was an awesome one for Dylan Morris. I was stoked to see him go there. Yeah. He's so, going to be playing in big games this year. It's going to be interesting to see. They uh, they played in the Armed Forces Bowl, lost that one to Air Force without their coach, and uh, presumably... <laughs> Can't really compete with Air Force in that one. Presumably without their quarterback as well, as, uh, given the fact that he's planning to transfer. I know he didn't... Jordan McLeod did play in that one. He went 20 of 33 for 257 yards and three touchdowns. Really? Uh, but the Air Force rushing attack was too much. 35 carries for 203 yards for Emmanuel Michel. Gotta love that option. Sounds about right. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the transfer portal in general, like we were talking about Jalen Polk, just thinking about all the players who, it was funny, like we knew Dylan Johnson would be a factor this year, but also he didn't go into the season as the number one starting running back. And how and how you can go until Cam Davis was injured, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The Cam Davis injury, all of a sudden, he became way more important. But like, you can go from, I I don't want to say Dylan Morris or Dylan Johnson was just a guy, but like, you know, he wasn't expected to be a huge impact player. To all of a sudden, we're in the national championship game, being like, the Huskies' offense is affected by not having him. So I think. I mean, Here's a stat. Dylan Johnson ran for nearly as many yards this season at Washington, obviously taking advantage of the extended season as he did in three years at Mississippi State. Also, like, just such a different scheme, too. But 
I mean, his per carry average was similar. He just didn't have that many opportunities necessarily at Mississippi State, whereas he became the guy for UW after that Davis injury. Yeah, and and that's kind of what I was thinking about. Like, a lot of how players play has to do with situation and opportunity. It's not purely about talent. It's a lot of situation and opportunity and, and coaching and scheme. And that's to me why I think I look at somebody like Will Rogers maybe a little bit more favorably and just go into it with, I mean, at this point, all we can really have is just confidence in Kalen DeBoer. But like his situation and the opportunities that he was having, and he's definitely having the opportunity to throw the ball a lot at Mississippi State, but just such a totally different offense that he was working in and such totally different skill talent around him that all of a sudden coming to UW could look very, very different and how he plays could look very, very different. I mean, the same with, we liked Michael Penix. We we were feeling good about Michael Penix. I don't think we thought to ourselves, Michael Penix is going to lead this team to the national championship game. So he's gonna, no, there, I didn't think he's going to finish runner-up in Heisman voting. There are a lot of things that happen in the transfer portal. It, and with recruits, it feels a little bit different because recruits, it takes way more time. But like, there are a lot of things that happen in the transfer portal that it's just really, really hard to predict because we just don't have, we don't have the situation. We don't have seen these players in that many different situations. And that's a lot of what college is about. So uh, I'm excited to see all of them. I think that UW has gone out and gotten a lot of experience and a lot of experience in important places. And I do think that they're going to be able to, maybe they won't be competing for the, for the natty again, but I wouldn't be shocked if they were competing for a playoff spot next year, given the talent coming back, given the players that are coming in through the portal. Oh no, I wouldn't be shocked either. I mean, I haven't looked at any of the too early rating uh, rankings for 2024, but I'm sure they're in the they're top like 25. In, yeah. They're in the like 15 range. Yeah, It'd be like well, right outside of yeah, 12 teams uh, make the playoffs. So yeah, you're exactly. That's what I'm 15, saying. Right outside of shot. the playoffs. Uh, yeah, ESPN has this 11th. So yeah, I mean, I I think UW's probably being slightly overrated. Maybe even just as a byproduct of how good they've done this year. But at the same time, like this is a roster that, I mean, a lot of the roster is. We didn't expect Roma Dunze to be a top. He's basically guaranteed to be a top 15 pick in the draft, let's say. And I, like I do you chose I right before the Seahawks pick. I mean, it's kind of just an arbitrary number, but like, I don't think that's what we thought Roma Dunze's future was when he was here with Jimmy Lake. We didn't really think that much about Roma Dunze at all. So we, we also did not think that, uh, uh, Nakua was going to become the best rookie receiver <laughs> in NFL history. I feel like that's one of my all-time L's is not believing in Pukunukua after the first game. Didn't we make Ugh. a bet about that? Did we? Um, I may have I to think, review the tape. I think we might have made a bet about Pukunukua, and I guarantee you I lost. <laughs> because, because I definitely did not believe that Pukunukua was going to be. But I don't know. That's the thing. It's It's really hard to predict how talent is going to be in college sports. I believe what you mean is it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So, Can I tell you the good news know. about playing in the national championship game? What is that? It's that much less time until the start of next season. There we go. 
All right. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Uh, again, we will have the State of the Seahawks podcast at the end of the 2023 season. Uh, we have not set a time, locked in a time yet with Ben Baldwin, but I'm anticipating having that out early next week. And uh, again, if you haven't, check out our post-game podcast from after the College Football Playoff Championship and enjoy us rationalizing. On that, note, on that note, thanks for listening. Thanks. Enjoy us rationalizing.